so if you haven't heard of Bay Area Regional Medical Hour or Bay Area Regional Medical Center, we are the new hospital on Highway 3, the big blue glass building. Uh, and we just opened our women's center with a level three. So we're, we haven't gotten our designation yet, but we can take babies as young as 23 weeks in our NICU, which is awesome. So we're super excited to hear to um, be delivering babies now. We started in September of last year. So we're and today we're talking all about babies. Dr. John Crochet. Yay. <laughs> so babies, babies, babies. So Dr. Crochet, let's just dive right in if that's okay. So most people, I don't know how many people have problems getting pregnant. Why don't you, let's talk about that sure. real quick. So <clears throat> first of all, thanks for having me, Abby. I'm super excited to be here and talk about, um, you know, what I love to do, which is to help couples get pregnant. Um, so, um, you know, it is is not an uncommon thing. Um, so, about 15% of uh, couples will uh, couples who are trying to conceive about 12 to 15% will uh, not have done so at about a year, and and at two years, it's as much as 10%. So, it's it's wow. it's actually quite common. Oh, awesome. Okay, so what's the most common cause of infertility that you see there? And there might be a couple, so you can talk about as many as you want. But what are the the most common ones? Yeah. So. <clears throat> So fertility really, I think it, it helps to understand it in, in very simple terms. And for me, I, I kind of think of it as three big categories of things that it might be. Okay, so there can be egg and ovulation issues, there can be anatomic issues, and then there can be male factor. Okay. Um, when you look at when we talk about egg and ovulation, we're talking about female factors, and that makes up about thirty percent of all causes of infertility. Okay. So, the the male side of it um, is, uh, and that also encompasses the second category, the the anatomic right. issues. The male category alone is about thirty percent. Oh, and, wow. then, and then a, and then there's a combined factor. So uh, as an example, a woman may have some type of ovulation dysfunction, which is a problem with growing and releasing the eggs. And then the male may also have a mild factor, like his sperm counts are not perfect, right? So about 30% of the time, there's a combined factor. And then about 10% of the time, we'll do a very, very thorough evaluation, uh, evaluate each of those categories and not find anything. We, ca we call that unexplained infertility, which, which I kind of don't like the terminology for a couple of reasons. So number mm -hmm. one, um, I feel like people feel defeated or they get frustrated with this diagnosis of unexplained infertility. And I don't know why, as fertility doctors, we feel compelled to put the term inf unexplainable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, after all, they're, they're coming to see me for answers. Um, I, I, I want to give them answers. Right, right. Um, and they, it can be defeating. So there's a lot of other medical conditions that relative that are relatively unexplained. For example, hypertension, high blood pressure. We don't feel the need to call that unexplained hypertension. We just call it hypertension. Mm -hmm. So I really, I really, I think it helps with patients' outlook on what's going on and say, look. We've done the evaluation. We didn't necessarily find any pathology. There's probably something going on. That's the bad news. The good news is there are treatments for this. Awesome. So walk me through the process. A couple decides that they need your help. What what do you do in that process? Walk me through the whole process. Yeah. So patients will come to us or they'll decide to, to come see us a, a lot of different ways. So we do get a lot of referrals from from doctors like Dr. Dr. Kenny, OBGYNs, family practitioners, urologists. Um, there are some patients who decide on, you know, through uh, internet search or mm -hmm. through search on Facebook or Instagram that they they want to see a fertility doctor. Um, they make an appointment, and I always stress to people that are thinking about making a, an, an appointment that really this is not a commitment 
to anything more than finding answers. So a lot of patients are totally worked up about the idea that they're going to have to do IVF or have to do fertility treatments or have to do this or Mm -hmm. have to do surgery. And we really don't. It's really just a commitment to talk about uh, what might be going on and talk about how we can how we can address those 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 things they may be um, there may be ways that we can improve their their fertility naturally um, or it may be that they do need some of these treatments and we can talk about why that is um, but when they do come in uh, they have a they have a we sit down and have a consultation and we go through uh, extensively their health history their family history uh, all of the lifestyle things that might be contributing to mm-hmm whether or not they're able to conceive. Then we do a physical examination, we do an ultrasound, we'll schedule the appropriate blood work if there is any that helps us get answers. We'll schedule any additional imaging, so we may need to do a test called a hysterosalpingogram, which is a test. That sounds like a weird test. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> What's that? It's, it's actually the test that patients are probably most scared about getting oh. because they've read it's got a scary name and a scary there, there you go <laughs> there, there, there you go so it's it they've read online about how awful it might be and it's really it's really not so um they can have a little bit of cramping what they what they do is they come in we uh we put a catheter into the cervix the catheter is teeny tiny it does have a little balloon that holds it in place and then we inject some contrast and take pictures of of their uterus and hopefully their fallopian tube Okay. So it gives us a lot of really good information about the uterus, the anatomy, whether or not the fallopian tubes are open. And and most patients tell me after having this, they say, they'll sit right up and say, wow, that was not near as bad as I thought uh, it was going to be. Okay. So, so is it kind of like a colonoscopy? <laughs> It, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. I was like, something that goes in and yeah, takes yeah, pictures. Yeah. No, in fact, it's kind some, of, yeah, right? No, 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 no. I'm, not quite. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> okay. So, so it's if you have that question, there are lots of other people that do as well. So this is it, it's basically an X-ray. Okay. So, so okay. We, we use a kind of like the cath lab. Similar, yeah. Okay. So, but instead of using an ultrasound, we use a, a C arm that takes X-ray pictures. It's called fluoroscopy. Okay. So we actually get what look like our X-ray images of the lower abdomen and pelvis, and you can actually see the bones of the of the pelvis. But you know that's not why we're looking. Right. But people will re- will recognize those images. So what do you look for? So we're we're hoping two things so it's called hysterosalpingogram which means uterus it means it means imaging of the uterus and fallopian tubes okay so we're looking specifically at the contour of the uterine cavity and whether or not there's any uterine pathology so things that we might see are scar tissue endometrial polyps fibroids inside the uterine cavity any of these things would show up on a on an HSG. That's short for hysterosalpingogram. Yeah, I like HSG. HSG better. is way better. It's <laughs> way less scary, for sure. Um, and then and then we also can determine whether or not the fallopian tubes are open or whether or not they're blocked or if they have some some other type of pathology uh, in the in in the fallopian tube. The most common thing that we would see is the tubes would be dilated with fluid. That's called a hydrosalpinx. So, so what, what what makes that happen? Anything that can cause inflammation in the pelvis, can cause scarring to the tubes. The tubes are super, super sensitive. Hmm. So any prior surgery, endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, prior sexually transmitted infection, these are all things that can cause the tubes to become scarred. If they become scarred, they become occluded and they collect fluid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so after you do that test, then what do you do? 
so then it takes some time to get the results back of the blood work, and 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 that's generally about two to three weeks. Okay. Um, we'll schedule a follow up appointment, and this is where they come in. So that initial appointment itself is is about an hour FaceTime that I have with the patient. So wow, that's a long time. It's a long time. We spend a lot of time setting the groundwork of the discussion for. You know what might be going on. That's that helps patients understand why we do the evaluation that we do and why we do the treatments that we do. Mm-hmm. So they come back for the follow up two to three weeks later. We discuss all of the results in detail. We'll revisit any parts of the conversation that we need to, the ones that are appropriate, and then and then we come up with a plan, which could be anything from look, things look pretty good. You know, we can. We, we, there is no sense of urgency here. Let's talk about ways to improve your natural fertility, or it could be, guys, there, there's a problem. You know, there's, there's, there's this or there's that, and there, or there's something that we need to address. And it might be that we need to do fertility improving surgery. It might be that we, you know, somebody has issues with ovulation. We need to fix that. Generally, there's a plan for any of those things that we're testing for. There's, there's a plan. You know, there's, okay. there's never a, a time where I throw my hands in the air and say, well, uh, I give yeah, up. I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, just, that just doesn't happen. Okay. So uh, I have a couple of questions that people posted on Facebook. So I want to answer those before we have to go to break. Uh, what tests can women have to measure their fertility? So the single most important test, I believe, is, is, is a test called AMH. It stands for anti-mullerian hormone. And this is, is the best way to measure what we call ovarian reserve. So this is egg number. It's okay. the best way to measure a woman's egg number. The reason this is so, so, so important is because from the time a woman's born, she has all of the eggs that she's going to have. Mm-hmm. And so st- starting at puberty, there's a slow, steady decline in egg number and in egg for and, and egg quality that's ongoing. And that causes the fertility, it causes her fertility to, to decline. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are a number of different ways to measure ovarian reserve. The, the most easy and most uh, available way is to test this blood test called AMH. Okay. Well, what about men? So men, it's a semen analysis. So it's, um, you know, we have them come into the office. There's a collection room. Um, it's not as awful as it sounds. Um, <laughs> they, you know, there's, they, they uh, give a sample. Uh, we put it under the microscope and we look at the, the, the number of sperm, the, the motility, how they look, we grade them. It's called morphology and all of these criteria are metrics that we use to to check a man's fertility. Bay Area Regional Medical Hour, and we're talking to Dr. Crochet, who is a reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist. We're talking about how, okay, so first we're we're gonna finish up our conversation about making people pregnant, yes, because people like to get babies, yes, and then we're gonna talk to Dr. Kenny about the embarrassing questions once you are pregnant that you're afraid to ask. They're embarrassing, but we're gonna ask them anyway because that's so much fun. (laughs) So, all right, let's go back to Dr. Crochet. Do diet and exercise affect your chances of conception? That was another question that someone posted. Yeah, they do. I mean, generally, I recommend that people have a healthy lifestyle. So. That's that's eat eat you know from a nutritional standpoint, um, eat healthy. It's not any different than what you've heard before. I and mean, there's a lot of different things out there about different diets. There's something called the fertility diet. You know, there's uh, for a lot oh, of really yeah. It's 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 not necessarily one that I agree with 100. percent The the premise behind it is that you eat full fat dairy, which for some people is fine, but that that's not the answer for everybody. Uh, one of the most common things that I see are women with PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. Oh, that was another question that somebody else had. Yeah, and so one of the one of the common 
things that go along with PCOS is insulin resistance, which is essentially prediabetes. So for those patients, I would recommend a low glycemic diet. And for all patients, I I really believe in in what amounts to like an anti-inflammatory diet. So there's there's a lot of stuff out there these days about you know how how an anti-inflammatory diet can improve your gut health, can decrease the over overall in, in inflammation of your body, mm-hmm. and so these are things like paleo and whole thirty, and I think those are great, great, great nutritional plans for people that are trying to conceive. Uh, yep, I agree. And it seems like every week we come back, and I'm talking to doctors, and every single week a doctor says diet and exercise will help prevent this or whatever. So it's interesting to hear on that side of things too. And another side note, uh, we do bariatric surgery at the hospital and I cannot tell you how many couples have had trouble conceiving than they had bariatric surgery, both lost a hundred. There was one couple, they lost a hundred pounds each, like together it was 200 pounds and, uh, they were able to have a baby after they lost their weight, which was awesome. Yeah, that is fantastic. I've had, I've had some of those same kinds of patients and I do refer patients for bariatric surgery when it's appropriate there there are people that's a great tool for people who are having a hard time losing weight Um, and and sometimes people need a dramatic weight loss to not only be able to conceive but then to have a healthy pregnancy Mm -hmm. right Um, so it's it's important in that regard absolutely okay so so the go ahead well I was gonna say the interesting thing on on exercise is is I'm a big fan of exercise too and and I think that that the extremes of no exercise can be detrimental to your health and to your fertility but the extreme of overdoing it can be Mm -hmm. can be problematic as well so I've had patients that are that are and and not not all endurance um racers or runners have have these issues but I've had patients where the only thing that we can 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 find is that they're 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 running too much. You know, I had, wow. a, had, yeah, I had a I had a runner. She Slow ran about down. sixty miles a week, and a yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> no thanks. But you know, this is this is, and so we had to find that balance. Happy medium, exactly. Yeah. We had to fi- find that balance of what was enough that it didn't uh, mess with her mental health. Right? Mm-hmm. She said, "This I need this," versus something that wasn't being detrimental to her, yeah. f- her fertility. Okay, so we were just talking about PCOS and we had another question about that. What complications arise when trying to get pregnant when a woman has PCOS? So the issue with PCOS is they're not they're not ovulating. They're not, they're not growing and releasing the eggs. And 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 really this is probably the single most common thing that I see. I see tons and tons of women with PCOS and and it from from the standpoint of helping them get pregnant, it's actually pretty easy. So hmm. there are some things that we can do. You know, we might have we might come up with a nutritional plan. We might add in exercise. Some of the things that we've talked about. Um, we'll do extensive testing and we'll address specific endocrinological issues that they might have. But at the end of the day, a lot of these women ultimately need fertility medications to help them grow and release eggs. Um, and, and the way that we do it these days, we do it monitored. We're very conservative with our approach. Monitored means with ultrasounds and blood work. We do it. We're very conservative. And, and the risks, they're there, but they're really, really low. Awesome. Okay, so let's get back to some of these other questions. What holistic approaches are there to improve fertility? That was a question from Brandy. So, uh, great question, Brandy. I think the thing that that a lot of people would consider holistic that probably has been studied the most and has and, and appears to have the most impact is is actually acupuncture. So, yeah, there's there's tons 
tons and tons of studies about acupuncture. And you'll find studies that say it's helpful. You'll, you'll find studies that say it's not. But what you don't find are any studies that say it's detrimental. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, for my patients that may find it, as a good tool for relaxation, I think it's great. I think it's a great tool for, for people who are coming in. Fertility treatments can be stressful. Um, this is a great way to help them relax. That's awesome. Okay, so what treatment do you recommend first to people when they see you? It totally depends upon what we find. So, so each patient that comes in has that very, very extensive evaluation that's done. And we want to have a plan that's specific to what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. So what's right for one patient is not necessarily what's right for another. I, I really have some patients that, you know, they have issues that require surgical treatment and, and that's the, that's the treatment that they need. Right. I have patients like we talked about with ovulation dysfunction and PCOS, they, they may need just a little bit of fertility drugs to help them to get them to ovulate. And then, and then we have patients who, who have issues with their fallopian tubes or they have severe male factor. And, and those are the kinds of scenarios that require IVF and vitro fertilization. Okay. So what are your success rates? So again, it depends on the type of treatment. I would say that, that uh, across the board, I would consider us to be extremely successful in all the treatment types that we do. Uh, I will say that, that well over half of all the patients that come to us end up getting pregnant in some way other than IVF. So although we're, we're, I think we're best known for how we treat patients and our success rates with IVF, a lot of the other treatments that we do are successful as well. So when you look at IVF by itself, you know, the success rates that we tell people these days, probably the, it depends on age more than anything else, but it's anywhere from about 70, 50 to 70% per transfer, which is crazy good. Awesome. Um, if they're doing things like the fertility drugs with or without inseminations, IUIs, then those success rates can be anywhere from about 10 to 15%. Okay. What's an IUI for people who don't know? So that stands for intrauterine insemination. So this is what we would, this is the treatment that we would do when there's a mild male factor. So the, the, the sperm counts are just a little bit low or the motility is just a little bit low. That's, that's the treatment of choice in that scenario. Oh, okay. So are there any side effects for any of these? There are. So um, there <laughs> that's are. a broad question. So you can narrow that down as much as you want. Yeah. So, so, so again, the, the approach with the medications is pretty conservative and we do everything in a monitored way to limit the, the, the risk of side effects. The, the oral medications that we use for ovulation are generally very well tolerated. Some people will have mild symptoms like headaches, maybe some nausea, maybe feeling fatigue. Oh, like what you feel when you're pregnant. Exactly. So it's all, it's, it's all, it's all hormonal, girl. So the other thing on, on hormones, one of the medicines in particular is called Clomid. I, I don't use it a whole bunch, but it is, it is used a ton. It, it is known. It's notorious for causing hormonal-type symptoms. So a lot of women... Or, or their husbands will ask about the moody, <laughs> the, the the moodiness, the yeah. you know them being emotional. So, yeah. um, and I find that 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 if you go through these things up front and people expect these, it, it's more tolerable. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I mean, it is what hap what happens when you're pregnant too. There you go. Is there anything that can be done to improve chances of success before, during, and after treatment? Yeah, so a lot of the things that we talked about. So, um, you know, just being healthy. So having a healthy nutritional plan, getting a reasonable amount of exercise, but not overdoing it. Mm -hmm. um, there, as part of that evaluation, we're going to do a deep dive into all of the endocrinological factors that might be there. So we're going to, you know, if there's, if there's, for example, somebody has thyroid issues, even mild, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we need to handle that before they do any sort of fertility treatments. Right. There are. 
you know, different vitamins and, and such. Oh, speaking of thyroid, I have yeah. a question about that one. Yeah. What are the effects that IVF has on? This was another question. I didn't write down who asked this. I'm sorry. Yeah. What are the effects IVF has on people with thyroid problems? So it, it, IVF doesn't really have an effect on the thyroid as much as the thyroid ha, may have an effect on on whether or not you're successful with your oh, fertility okay. treatments. So that that's one of the first. Even even in a patient who doesn't have symptoms, uh, we're gonna we're gonna evaluate their thyroid because uh, they may be on the cusp of having a thyroid that's out of whack but they've not yet developed symptoms, and that's something that can have a dramatic impact on their fertility and then ultimately the success of their treatments. So uh, there is, you know, there, there is a, a relationship there, but it's kind of the flip-flop of what the question was. And we were, oh, we were, interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's talk about um, what, te what tests and procedures you do at Bay Area Regional Medical Center. So mostly, mostly the fertility improving surgeries. So the majority of what I would do there are what are called hysteroscopies. So this is more similar to a colonoscopy. <laughs> okay, like a colonoscopy. All right, just a different part but, of the body, but not as uh, okay. No got prep. It. We'll no let prep. you go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no crazy prep. Yeah. I like that so, part. So this is this is a, a camera that goes through the cervix and into the uterus. So it's there's there's no cuts or anything like that um, after the patient's asleep, and it's li it's super light anesthesia like. A about the amount that you would get for a colonoscopy. Put the camera into the uterine cavity. We would determine if there's any pathology there. So again, the most common thing that I would see in that scenario is a uterine polyp, and we can treat it right then and there. So that's a it's, it's a procedure that's both diagnostic and therapeutic. Okay, so let's talk about you for a minute. Yeah. Why'd you wanna become a doctor? Yeah, so I don't remember ever wanting to do anything else. Really? Uh, yeah. Like since you were a kid? Since I was a kid. I oh. just always wanted to be a doctor. I always enjoyed everything about it. Um, you know, I, I, I actually had a, had a, uh, a blood disease when I was a, when I was a child and, and spent a lot of time at Texas Children's Hospital. Wow. Yeah. And so that was, that really, that was at 10. I mean, you even before then, yeah, I got to see it all happen and I, and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. What made you choose fertility? Yeah. So my undergraduate degree was in genetics and and we it was it was at a time when there were a lot of hot topics in IVF and, and, and assisted reproduction and we talked about the genetics behind it in in undergrad so when i went in, when i went to medical school that was you know i remember day 1 everybody was talking about hey what do you want to do what do you want to do and i told them i want to be a fertility specialist and everybody would kind of <laughs> who wants to do that who knows that they want to do that yeah. so yeah that, you were just interested in it talk to me a little bit about your background in education so um, went to undergrad genetics, uh, studied genetics at Texas A&M, uh, did medical school at uh, UTMB here in Galveston, did my residency in OBGYN at UT Southwestern Parkland in Dallas, and then did the last part of my training, which is uh, reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Duke. Awesome. So uh, what, why don't you give your office location? If someone wants to contact you, what's the best way to reach you? So we have, we have five locations. We have a location in just right up the road here in Clear Lake. We have a location in the medical center. We have a new location in Memorial City. We also have a location in Beaumont and then uh, a satellite clinic in Pearland. So the best way to reach us at any of those locations is the phone number or the website. The phone number is 281-332-0073. The website is www.infertility 
infertilitytexas.com, all lowercase, all spelled out, Infertility Texas. If you're watching live on Facebook and you have some other IVF or fertility questions, you guys shoot those below and we'll be happy to answer those along the way. But we're going to transition real quick to Dr. Kenny and talk about, well, first we're going to talk a little bit about fertility and then we're going to talk about embarrassing questions that you're, <laughs> most women are questions. afraid to ask or they're just feeling, it's just uncomfortable. It's kind of awkward, it is, right? It but it, it happens and we're just going to, we're just going to get over it and talk about it. <laughs> but, uh, but you're probably one of the first people that that people go to when they start having fertility problems or you're the first one to hear about it what exactly do you help with on the fertility side so i feel like my main job first of all it is common like dr crochet was saying so i probably get you know a few consults a week on it and so i feel like my job is to get a good history see if there's any factors that may be um affecting their um that I may be able to optimize their fertility um, mm -hmm. and also educate. So um, there may be things that they're doing that they don't realize that may be affecting their fertility. Um, I kind of go through what they've, their history um, and uh, try to identify factors that we can um, Im improve on. And then I go over the infertility workup. So which includes basic lab work, also semen analysis, like he said, in a hysterosalpingogram. Oh, you do the fancy of the HSP, HSP well, I, thing too. HSP, is it, I is it Isaiah right? I don't know. <laughs> I, I go over, I prepare them for what that that's going to entail. And I, um, and I uh, refer them over to Dr. Crochet and their okay. office does that. Okay. So when do you refer patients to see a reproductive endocrinologist like Dr. Crochet? At what point? It really depends. So, um, after, usually after I do the infertility workup, then, um, I will meet back again with the couple and go over what the results were. And I will discuss things that I'm able to offer in my office, um, and things that, um, Dr. Crochet is able to offer. Mm -hmm. And there are some cases where I say, I can offer you this. Um, there's some, a few things that you can do to change your lifestyle, um, that may help you get pregnant, um, without doing any sort of treatment. Um, or there are some cases where I will directly go ahead and refer them to, uh, to Dr. Crochet. Okay. So say you send someone to Dr. Crochet and yay, they're pregnant. Woohoo. Baby's coming. At what point do you get those patients back? Or do you, uh, Dr. Crochet earlier said, no, he does not deliver babies. So yeah. I know that, but everybody else listening doesn't know that. So I'm assuming that there's like a handoff back and forth. Yeah, when does that happen? Kind of a relay race. So I'll, I'll hand it <laughs> off to uh, them to Dr. Crochet once they get pregnant then um, I see them back around 12, 13 weeks. And that's probably the best part of my job is getting them back and seeing them on my schedule as a new OB patient. I get really excited. I start looking through their records and um, that's one of the best part of my jobs. And that's, of, and that's, of one, of the best, that's one of the best part of my job is sending them back. <laughs> sending them back? <laughs> I, call, I, I call it graduation. Yay! So, uh, we, we, love, we love when patients graduate. That's awesome. Yes. That's very cool. So, okay. Uh, anything else fertility wise that you want to cover before we get into some embarrassing questions? No, I think it's just important for people to know that they're not alone, um, that there are a lot of doctors, you know, that's why they have infertility specialists because there, um, there's a need for that. So I think that's the most, um, uh, important thing. Okay. All right. So Dun, 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 these embarrassing questions that people feel uncomfortable asking. Number one, will I have, will I have a bowel movement during delivery? So <laughs> it's funny because we do C-sections, hysterectomies, and one of the common questions on postpartum and post-op rounds is, are you passing gas? And I recently had a patient who said, 
I asked her if she was passing gas, and she said, no, I don't do that. <laughs> and I was a little confused at what? first, and then, and then I saw her look over at her husband, kind of, and they kind of smirked at each other. And so then it took me a few seconds, but I said, oh, okay, well, if you did pass gas, would you be passing gas now? <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, women, we pass gas, we have bowel movements. And so, um, yeah, in, in delivery, I wouldn't say 100% of people have a bowel movement during delivery, but I would say the majority of people will have a bowel movement. And it's actually, I would tell people, you know, it's that means you're pushing in the right spot because you use the same muscles to um, <laughs> push out poop as you do right. push out the baby's so head. So do does that happen during a C-section too or no? It, it's sometimes, but it's usually during a vaginal delivery. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, but I was like, oh, I've yeah, never asked that question It's mostly with, with the pushing oh. that that happens. Okay, All And right. it's nothing to be embarrassed about. You know, I know it's natural to be embarrassed, but the nurses, we OB-GYNs, we're very used to used it. Used to it. Yeah. It's just part of it. It's just part of it. Let's just get we the baby out. We expect it. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So the next question, will I get stretched out down there? So, um, I guess the short answer is probably yes. I guess, uh, you know, to what degree probably depends on genetics, how big the baby is, how long you have to push for if you have a normal delivery or a C-section. But it'll go back, so don't worry, right? It will go back to some extent, yeah. Okay. So, this is the question that I think every woman when they're pregnant, like, doesn't even want to talk about at all. But I... Um, well, I'm pregnant, so I talk about it all the time because I'm like, I don't want to gain too much weight, but it just it's part of it, right? So right. have I gained too much weight? That that's a that's a that's a question that maybe some people feel embarrassed to ask. Oh yeah, that's a concern. So I always go over at my first visit how much um, weight I expect uh, my patients to gain. And you know, you have an average size baby of seven pounds, so you should only gain seven pounds, right? Um, but uh, no, obviously you gain more weight, so a lot of that is in the placenta, the amniotic fluid, you have more blood volume in pregnancy, uh, more water weight. And so it depends on what, it is important to monitor that. It, it depends on how, um, your starting weight. So if you're a normal weight, and that's usually done by body mass index, so mm -hmm. calculation with your height and weight. Um, the, uh, um, the recommended weight gain is between 25 and 35 pounds. Um, if, you're if you have a normal BMI. Exactly. If you have, if you're overweight, um, more like 15 to 25 pounds. And then if you're obese, 10 to 15 pounds. So okay. I do, it is important to not eat for two. Um, not for two whole adults. I exactly. say that to my father-in-law all the time. <laughs> yeah. He's like, come on, you're eating for two. And I'm like, not no, two no, adults. Not so much. <laughs> um, so increase, uh, you know, I, well, I guess most people don't count their calories, but 300 calories a day, which is not that much. Um, and then also it's important to exercise. There are some conditions where we don't want you know, patients exercising, but for most people, low risk patients, um, 30 minutes a day of exercise so at, is important. So at what point would you tell someone not to exercise? Well, like women who have preeclampsia, um, is the most common example. So, hmm. uh, issues with high blood pressure, um, increased activity can make the blood pressure worse. 
Well, so that's probably the most common you know, and, the ki- and the kinds of exercises, too. I'm, you know, I tell a lot of my patients early on that I'm, co- I'm concerned about them falling. So if they're doing it, I'm an advocate for exercise, but I don't want them doing things where they leave their feet. You know, so you shouldn't be you know, doing box jumps and things like this if you're or bicycling if, on the road. Right. I had to tell patients she couldn't surf anymore. Oh, yeah. So that, ooh. anything where you're going to be yeah, you could have fall. the risk of fall. Yeah, exactly. It's important to avoid. <clears throat> well, so yeah, I went from, yeah, yeah, people, we have, I have a bicycle. I w- did triathlons for a while <clears throat> and, uh, it's like, all right, it's time to get our little stationary bike to ride inside. Yay! Yes. That would be much safer. And then yoga, Pilates are, you know, uh, common forms of exercise, obviously not hot yoga, but, um, mm-hmm. those are also safe forms of exercise. What okay. about goat yoga? Goat? I don't know what that is. <laughs> you have not heard of that? Oh my no. gosh, it's so much fun. They do they do it in Lake City. Yeah, they do. So you you do yoga and there's goats that jump on you the whole what? time. <laughs> this I have is, this a friend that like does baby it. Yeah, goats. Yeah. This is, yes. Baby goats. I love baby like goats. Little Those baby videos are hilarious. Miniature you goats. Oh my it gosh! Looks I'm gonna it look looks this like up fun after this. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like fun. Okay, so uh, I've heard I won't be able to control my bladder after pregnancy. Is this true? That is fairly common, especially right if you have a normal vaginal delivery, and um, especially in the first couple of weeks after delivery. A lot of times it gets better. I usually have patients, you know, do Kegel exercises, so basically squeezing the pelvic muscles to help uh, strengthen those muscles. But there's some, you know, some stretching, some damage done when there's nerve stretching uh, with the um, delivery that can weaken those muscles that help you hold in the pee. And it can happen while you're pregnant too, right? It can, yes. All the increased (laughs) pressure from the pregnancy, yeah, it puts pressure on your bladder and makes it more difficult to hold in. I always tell people being pregnant is really not that glamorous. Yeah, it's it's not. And it can be tough. It's it's fun though when you feel the baby move. Yeah. I like that part. (laughs) Some other people are like, it feels, this just feels like weird. But I'm like, I like it because I know he's he's alive. Exactly. And we love hearing that as OB-GYNs. That's awesome. Okay, so is it normal to have so much discharge after pregnancy? Well, yes. I mean, during pregnancy and after pregnancy. So during pregnancy, a lot of women, especially towards the end, have to wear a panty liner because there's so much discharge and they're not used to that. So typically that's normal unless they have, you know, a lot of burning or itching or there's a bad odor, or obviously if they think they might've broken their bag of water. And then afterwards there is discharge. That's usually kind of a it's bloody and then it kind of turns to a brown color then kind of a yellowish white color Mm -hmm. okay so um i have lots of other embarrassing questions to ask you today we're talking about all about babies and we're talking with dr kenny she is an OBGYN, and we're asking her all of the embarrassing questions that you might be afraid to ask or you want to ask but you know it's just embarrassing and awkward to ask these questions but we're asking them anyway because it's fun yeah right okay so when you're pregnant, is bad gas and indigestion normal? Again, we females, do, we do not burp or fart. Um, <laughs> no, it is it is very common. The, the hormones do a number on you, so they basically slow down everything in your GI tract. And so everything kind of spends more time in there, and there's more time to produce gas. So it's really common for you know people to have a little gas belly in the first trimester, um, to feel a little bloated, um, to have some indigestion. It's it's very common. And then at the third trimester, as your baby's putting pressure on your stomach and your esophagus, um, it's common to have the acid reflux and indigestion. So typically, I have people 
you know, try avoiding spicy food, fatty food, greasy food that can make it worse. Caffeine, chocolate, you know, all the stuff that we like and um, let gravity be your friend. So um, stay sitting upright for at least an hour after you eat. And then mm-hmm. if that doesn't work, there are over-the-counter medications like Tums that um, can help. And then Pepsid. How many does Tums trick. can you take in a day? I'm asking for personal reasons. <laughs> <laughs> for a friend. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> a friend asked me. <clears throat> Um, you know, Tom's actually has calcium in it, which is actually, you know, good for the pregnancy and for the developing baby. Um, so as, how, as far as how many, I usually have people take, you know, um, two to four in a day. I don't know what mm-hmm. the exact maximum is that you can you okay. know, take before it gets dangerous. But Okay. <laughs> I'm taking at least two a day right now. That's fine. Sometimes more than that. Just depends. Yeah. Okay. Duly noted. Noted. Okay, so what can I do to ease indi- er, d- digestion issues? I think we just talked about Tums and anything else that you recommend for people? Bland uh, diet? Yeah, mm-hmm. it, right. Bland diet and then overall eating healthy. The other thing I forgot to mention was that, um, you know, people are used to eating their three full meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but it is important in pregnancy to do space it out and do smaller frequent meals. That way your stomach doesn't get as full. And you don't get nauseous as yeah, often. Exactly. Speaking from experience, it's crazy. <laughs> it's I started doing that um, eating every about three hours or so, and it right. has helped so much with nausea too. So anyway, so this is another question. Um, I know this from personal, but you know, most people may not know. Can I sleep through labor? So you can, as you know, I've people who have an epidural, I've seen take a nap in labor and active. We were talking about active labor. Well, yeah, because um, you can't feel that. Right. But so non-epidural. I have never <laughs> seen that. I'm sure there's someone out there who has taken a nap during active labor, but uh, maybe an early labor taking a nap. But I have personally never seen anyone without an epidural take uh, fall asleep during labor. Have you? I haven't. No, no you're yeah. no, you're not going to just all of a sudden have a baby laying in your bed. Like, no, it hurts. No. Right. It's there labor are some, for a reason. There <laughs> are a rare, you know, few patients who are able to tolerate pain, like just have crazy pain tolerances. And, um, but as far as sleeping, not so much. Okay. Wow. Okay. So next question, will I have leaky breasts? Yeah, probably. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> they even start to leak during pregnancy, and that's, you know, the colostrum. Um, so kind of the high protein discharge that the um, that it produces prior to the milk coming down. Mm-hmm. So it is important to not really squeeze them because that can actually stimulate contractions, especially if you're preterm. So um, wouldn't recommend that. But if they leak, then you know a little bit. That's okay. Don't worry about it. And then. Um, of course, after you deliver, then yeah, you're gonna have leaky breasts. That's why they make the nipple pads so that yeah, I get the pads. Keep, yeah, I keep your clothes clothes dry. Yep. Okay. Uh, talk to me about all these weird dreams. So yes, <laughs> dreams be- can become more vivid. Um, a lot more vivid. A lot more vivid. Um, Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't. We don't know exactly why. There's a lot of stuff about dreams that we, you know, don't know why. Um, but you know, some, we think maybe they're, you know, maybe hormonally re- related. That can increase anxiety and cause more dreams. But also, when you're pregnant, you don't. Um, 
you know, you have to pee at night more often, so you get woken up, and so you spend more time in the REM cycle of your sleep, which is when you dream. Mm. And so if you get woken up during that cycle, then you're more likely to remember dreams. So it may, it may not be so much that you dream more, but more so that you remember them. That's more. probably true. Yeah, 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 yeah. And insomnia is very common in pregnancy from the hormones and then, you know, other factors getting up to pee at night. Um, so I do see that a lot. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about why you choose to deliver at Bay Area Regional Medical Center. Yeah, Bay Area um, is a great place to deliver. I have you know patients who request to deliver all the time, and a lot of times it's after they've done the tour. It's a beautiful facility. It's gorgeous. Um, the rooms are really big, really nice. Accommodates you know visiting grandparents, um, and but more importantly, you know the people who, you know the nurses, postpartum nurses, and the NICU team that run the everyday. Um, uh, functions are um, really take good care of the patients. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about you real quick. Why did you want to become a doctor? I actually wanted to, um, when I was really little, wanted to check people out at the grocery store. So I did not know I'd wanted to be a doctor at a very early age, but I, you know, had some um, exposure to seeing physicians interact with patients um, in high school, doing medical mission trips, and. I just, I don't know that there was really one thing that made me want to become a doctor, but just um, obviously wanting to help people, but there are a lot of professions out there that can help people. Um, I just thought that with um, my um, abilities that that was the best fit for so me. So why'd you choose OBGYN? I did not know a lot about what OBGYNs did going into medical school. I did my rotation and it was just exciting. And um, it, I just love the idea of, being able to see how the continuity of care and being able to see the same patient and then deliver their baby is just really cool and very rewarding. Awesome. And um, you have to make that decision actually pretty quickly in medical school. And I just got lucky that I love my job yeah. now and uh, I made the right decision. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about your background in education. I also am an Aggie, um, went there for undergrad and then went to, I'm from Dallas, uh, so went to College Station for undergrad, then went up to TCOM UNT Health Science Center for medical school in Fort Worth and then went to, um, did my OBGYN residency training in Chicago and then I've been here since. Okay, so before we go, why don't you give us your, where your office is located and if someone wants to make an appointment with you, how do they get in contact with you? Okay, our office is located on 17 Professional Park, and we're about maybe, I think there's two stop signs in between us and Bay Area Regional. Um, <laughs> so we're really close to the hospital. Um, and then you can reach us at 281-332-9511. And then our website is www.baobgyn.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Loved having you guys and talking about babies and embarrassing questions. So much fun. Thanks and for having us. Yeah. Thanks, this Abby. was fun. This was fun. And next week, we're going to talk to Dr. Holt, who is an orthopedic surgeon. We're going to talk about shoulders, and we're going to talk to Bob Fuller about keels and wheels. So you guys come back next Tuesday at 4. We'll see you then. Have a good week.